and good morning here on Fuzzy Logic, our science on a Sunday. Now, the official position of Fuzzy Logic is that climate change is real, it is caused by humans, and it is a disaster for humans. Now, there are plenty of people around who would like to think that is not true, and to be honest, I just wish it would go away. I don't think I know any practicing scientist who thinks that climate change is a good thing. And I would like to welcome into the studio a couple of people who have a very strong and deep interest in the question of how people think about climate change. And on the left microphone, good morning, Jackie Hopner. You are a proto-doctor from the Centre for the Public Advancement of or Awareness, awareness yeah. of Science. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Rod. <laughs> and uh, on the right microphone, we have Inez Harker-Shuk. That's right. I have uh, also a proto-doctor and with a deep and abiding interest in uh, climate change and the effects thereof on humanity. Now, what is it that got you both interested in the question of climate change and how people think about it? Well, I think it had to do, it was kind of by accident. I wanted to do a marine biology degree. Um, I had a big interest in um, involving myself in um, environmental work there, particularly science. Um, And in my first year of my bachelor, I had to do a course on climate change. And as I was studying the course, um, it was so glaringly obvious to me that this was such a huge problem for humanity um, that I had really no other recourse except to kind of get... Um, involved as much as I could to um, to ensure that people understand. Would you say that part of your psychology is you see a problem and you have the urge to fix it? Oh yeah, I think there is something in there. Um, I don't know what Freud would say about that, so let's not <laughs> go there. But I think there are issues. This kind of driven meaning for life. You know, I I wanted to do something that was worthwhile that my children would respect um, and would provide some kind of. Um, you know, support for humanity. But if, if you were a person who I could crudely petition the population, which is, of course, a bad scientific thing <laughs> to do, the, the left and the right or the front seat and the back seat, the pilots and the passengers, that some people are passive, that the, they're on the plane, the plane is going where the plane will go, and I just sit there and other people just say, I can't bear the way this plane is going I am I need to be in control in some way I need to do something is that part of your thinking do you think yeah I think that's definitely a part of it it's a great question um it is the idea of of contributing and the idea of um helping us to drive that um plane in the right direction to make sure we all land safely definitely (laughs) it is kind of kind of nice when we land safely and uh, (laughs) a few in-flight drinks always help (laughs) Now, now what about you Jackie what what got you involved in this um, well, my, my interest was probably a bit peripheral. So my honours project was on um, the media's coverage of wind turbine syndrome, so this, this kind of health fears around some wind farm developments. And it was one of those issues that seemed close enough to climate change that I felt like I was making, I would be, if, you know, if successful in, in kind of publishing about this, I would be having some in, impact in climate change debates and it was one of those issues again um, I think it was kind of a microcosm of climate change and in fact there's a huge overlap between you know people who don't believe climate change is happening and people who are um, 
opposed to wind wind farm yeah, development. Yeah, it's it's a it's a manageable scale, perhaps. It's yes. a, it's a, it's a, as you say a smaller part of the overall yes. problem. But what's your history with what's your emerging awareness of climate change? Do you remember a moment when you thought, oh, oh, this is real. This is something to be concerned about. Well, I was actually uh, lucky. I think a lot of other people probably didn't have this, but my my parents are hardcore uh, lefties, and and for as long as I can remember, that was that was a concern. I can remember being, you know, probably three or four years old, and and my mum talking about global warming and and what a risk it was. And so this was, you know, this is well before um, an inconvenient truth. This is well before the the kind of probably mainstream concern about climate change. So I feel like it was always it's part a of your, concern. As yeah. far back as you can remember. Absolutely. But, but you used the term just now, lefty, right? Mm. And is one of the problems with this whole question, uh, yes, I can see some nodding heads, that uh, it, it's become a political question, but really at its core it's a science question, is it not? Yes, and I, I think something that confounds me as well and, and, and an interest of mine in, in how we communicate climate change is there are plenty of people who, who have a strong opinion on it and, and they might have, as, as we might think, you know, according to your, your opening statement, the right opinion, but it doesn't necessarily... Uh, change their behaviours in any way. I mean, I know plenty of people who believe climate change is a, is a is a problem. It's happening. It's caused by humans. But when you say to them, "Okay, but what are you what are you doing to mitigate you know your effects on the climate?" It's like, "Well, I have to drive to work, and you know, I have to I have to eat steak." Yeah. And, no, and I think we think that that understanding and opinion and action are all tied together, and I actually don't think they are. I think we need to. Kind of pass these. Yeah, these I, I've, I've seen a, a graduation, a scale of uh, opinions about a, a subject, and you guys are science communicators, so you you could probably tell me better than I can remember it. But on on the scale is no, no, it's not real. Then there's oh yeah, it's real. But and then there, you go up the continuum, and then you get people like yourselves who are actively doing something as much as within your power about it. Do, do, is that sort of what you're getting at Jackie? Yes I think so and I think um, what what is really important is the translating okay I understand the mechanism so I think any anything that that helps people to understand the kind of fundamental mechanisms and processes in climate change is, is really important and then you have to, to be able to say okay so you know what's happening and you know why it's happening and you know why it's a, a, a dangerous thing that we need to avoid we need to land the, the plane safely and get that to actually translate into actual for, into, for into some action. Yeah. I would also say that one of the biggest problems we have today is that we have this action in social media that does not translate to action in real life. And I think this idea of my daughter comes home, she's six, and she says, you know, mummy sharing is caring. But unfortunately, when it comes to adult engagement in really important issues, sharing isn't caring. It's actually doing something about it. And I think we, all of us, have this this very kind of passive idea that if you like a comment or you share it on, on Twitter or Facebook, this is enough. And actually, it isn't. It's called slacktivism, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Slacktivism, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, having an opinion is enough, but what actually happens is somebody else's problem. That pilot up there, mm. they went to flying school for years and they're sitting at the controls and, oh, they'll look after it for us. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about it.
That is a really important point you just made, somebody else's problem. This was, I think, you know, an iconic statement from Douglas Adams, who wrote um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I know right? this scene. Yeah, and he says that, um, you know, when it's somebody else's problem, it becomes completely invisible. So you could be playing, you know, um, a test, ma um, test match at Lord's Cricket Ground, an alien could land on the pitch, and you wouldn't actually see it because the enormity, the magnitude of that happening is so so huge and enormous that they can't compute, they can't, you know, you know... It's protected by the somebody else's problem SEP field. SEP and SEP that field, exactly. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that is, that is a, a, a genius, a genius insight, that one. Yeah, but uh, it's kind of also a sense of abstraction that uh, you, know, you and I are sitting here, we're experiencing being in the radio studio together. And for our listener, they're, they're sitting one step removed. They're out there on the radio, and then maybe that listener will say to their friend, "Oh, we listened to Fuzzy Logic, and we we heard uh, Jackie Hopner and Inez Harkershuk exactly <laughs> talking about climate change, and it was really cool, and they were really interesting guests." But it's, it's now two steps removed, and so on down the chain. And the further abstracted, the further you are from the problem, the, the the vaguer it gets yeah. and you, the less responsible you are for it. So if I have a diamond on my ring and it comes from one of those blood diamond mines in Africa, you know, used to fund child soldiers and that kind of awful thing, am I responsible? Uh. Of course so, are. yeah. Course you, are. you are responsible. You automatically become responsible when, I think, when you become aware of something. And there's a, ignorance is one thing, but... Um, you know, when you decide to be ignorant, when you choose to be ignorant, and they are correlated, but when you know that something is wrong, then it becomes an, an, an ethical issue that should not and cannot be ignored. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. We are essentially conflating science with politics and public policy, and it's just science. You can't deny the mechanisms of climate change. You can't deny the functions behind them. Yes, but before the show, Inez, you were talking about a person's uh, predisposition, their, yeah. their worldview before Very they funny. come to a question. Yeah. Do you want to clarify or tell me again what that we meant by that? Yeah, so you have a worldview which is basically an idiosyncratic belief system which um, it could be you prefer chocolate ice cream or vanilla and that you identify um, very, very um, intrinsically in your whole uh, um, identification of yourself with chocolate ice cream. And unfortunately, with these new post-normal science problems, and that's what climate change is, so is GMO and so are other issues, you have a thing that's called a wicked problem and that has social dimensions, mm. massive social dimensions. So those dimensions mean that we don't have a solution for it, we can't test a solution for it. It affects all these different other aspects of society, unlike what we call pure science or normal science. So um, with chemistry, you can do certain things, you can um, you know, formulate an idea of how it might or might not work. With climate change, we really can't. We also have no, and this is part of the wicked problem scenario, we don't know whether it's going to, we can, the, the solution we, or the different solutions we implement will actually have positive outcomes. There'll also be good and bad outcomes. So people, um, you know, just regular people, um, they get rather confused by this because they conflate then the idea of the, the, the social aspects, the political aspects. So it's, it's wicked because it's technically complicated and it's complicated yeah. because of human psychology. And, well, socio-political dynamics, yeah. essentially, that yeah. all come into this to make it very kind of really messy problem to deal with. And often with wicked problems, a solution, any, any particular solution may actually complicate it and make it worse. So we don't know. Yeah. There is no one 
silver bullet and and i and i think any movement in a particular direction can yeah can make it even well, more wicked uh, what i'm what i'm thinking of as you say that jackie is uh clive hamilton who i interviewed not long ago talking about uh his book earth masters uh, and geoengineering the, the the climate and he's deeply deeply concerned because if you're going to meddle with the cloud formation in one part of the planet, uh, what's the effect of that? And you're going to now suck rainfall out of the neighbouring country. It's just horrendously yeah. complicated. Uh, that's, yeah, yeah. sorry. And, you and could part of that, again with that, with this idea of all those things we have here, whether it's geoengineering our climate, um, whether it is, they all require every individual on Earth to make a decision. And they they also require us to become engaged and people because I think it's such an overwhelming problem it's really understandably overwhelming they become paralyzed mm. and that's a, that's a really really big problem in climate science because it's not really constructive we can do something about it um, climate scientists would have got to do other jobs if there was no hope for us and they would Let's I, I, I think I think we're having a, a violent agreement here on, <laughs> on, on fuzzy logic because uh, well we are talking about climate change uh, with, with our guest uh, the proto, or soon to be Dr. Jackie Hopner, and uh, Doctor at some future stage. Future stage. Proto, proto Doctor, we call you. Uh, it is Harker Schuch. Schuch, yeah. <laughs> and the 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 science, the the technical part of this is the easy bit. I think we know the mechanism of climate change, and we're going to talk more about that uh, here on Fuzzy Logic about feedbacks and so on. The really hard problem is the psychology of people. And like a difference between dogma and science, like people say to me, I used to get uh, to the newspaper column questions from a, a seven-day biblical creationist. Uh, she was a lovely lady and, and I miss her greatly. Mm. But there's a certainty in dogma. There's comfort. There's I don't need to challenge my beliefs. It's unsettling and science... Good science is unsettling because at any given moment you might suddenly learn that your heartfelt belief is wrong. And how do you how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that uncertainty? In my experience, people react um, very viscerally and very, uh, I would say, violently in some cases. Not necessarily physically violently, but there's this there's this response. To being uncomfortable and I think it's as you say it's much easier to to be comfortable and to to not allow this new information to to just to defer to an authority yes and I think and I think that's that's what a lot of us do I mean I I can say with with a hundred percent confidence that my strong belief in in climate change that it's happening that it's that it's caused by humans and it's a terrible risk is because of my upbringing. I could easily have been born to different parents. Okay. And I am, I am relying. I'm not a climate scientist, and I am relying on on an authority. And I could I could be wrong. I don't think I am. But there are things that I have, uh, especially with the research I've done, looking at attacks on academics. I have had to really challenge my own worldview and really think, okay, well, why do I think that? Was it just because someone told me when I was 11 and it's I've never that, challenged... It's that questioning, isn't it? And uh, a, a, a philosophical question that, that interests me deeply is uh, uh, 
epistemology yeah. and the question of how we know something. And it's a deeply, deeply fraught question. Yeah, it is. Because ultimately, at some level, it, it does rely on faith. And as you say, Jackie, uh, faith that the people who study these things, and even the fact that we can even know anything at all, but that's getting a that's such a slippery, slippery thing. I think the one that we talk about those kinds of things. I think one of the things that people often forget is that it is a, a scientist's job to be sceptical. They are they are required to challenge their own views. They are required to write hypotheses, which they either have to um, reject or support through the data that they find. So it is essentially part of our job to be skeptical. And I, I do have a background in science. I've had the extraordinary privilege of studying in Copenhagen and Copenhagen in Denmark. And I've gone to the ice core um, freezers where they keep the ice cores. And um, the professor there, he pulls out this enormous ice core and he shows us as, as and you know, they slice them off and they take out the small um, bubbles of, of the atmosphere at that time. And he sh also showed me where, you know, according to human history, where Buddha, when Buddha was born, when Jesus was born. Um, so I've, you know, I've had that privilege to work and study among, you know, under those professors. So you've students. seen it reasonably close up then? Often, that, yeah. That, uh, yeah. How did you feel when you saw that core? Well, it was. It, it's one of those moments when you, when you've. I wouldn't say I'm. I wouldn't say I'm proud to be a climate scientist because who really would want to have this job? I mean, who really wants to share this kind of news? It really isn't the most, you know, invigorating. Uh, are you like the the cancer surgeon saying, "I'm sorry, I have bad news"? Um, I I was like that. I have to admit, I was the kind of when I first started out, and I was very naive in my communicating with climate science. I did, of course, share a lot of the fear um, appeals and the impacts and things like this. And that's something I find is probably the most dangerous thing to do of all, mm. because it causes people to polarise. And that's what was what Jackie was talking about: was this idea of people being confronted with things they don't like and really going falling into two different categories, you know, two different political categories often. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, one of the questions I asked uh, Clive Hamilton about was uh, the stages of grieving and because he said he wrote this book uh, called Requiem for a Species deeply deeply gloomy book about humanity and where we're going and he said and Clive is an interesting bloke he's a very rational very critically, criti critical thinking person but he said I went into a deep depression and then he said, but that's what the stages of grieving is about. You go through the, the, the anger, the denial, the I can't remember all the five or so, and then eventually you get to acceptance and you move on from that and you, you do something about it. Now, interesting thing happened when I was interviewing a person from my book a couple of days ago, uh, Olympia, who is, by the way, a, a survivor of fuzzy logic. <laughs> She's involved with setting up a plant here in Canberra to use maggots, black soldier fly levets, maggots, to process vegetable waste and make it into animal feed. Anyway, I'm rambling. She said, I asked her, Do you, have you been through the stages of grieving? She said, no, I'm angry and I've stayed angry and I want to stay 
I want to stay that way because that way I do something, <laughs> which is which is an interesting interesting response. It's, it's survival, isn't it? I mean, in many ways, I think we're all coping in different ways. I mean, um, I can get angry and I can get very disheartened by um, a lot, of, especially on social media. I do engage. Um, on in especially when people troll um, issues about climate science, and um, because of my you know working with CPAS, I've learned a lot in that um, in that department, and they've um, they've one of the things that I learned there was that it's not really the person that's um, trolling the issue; it's usually the people who are the lurkers, the people who are not engaging in the issue, but they they want to know what people how people are going to respond. Uh, you mean so one category is the immutable? I've fixed my view and I'm going to troll. And then there's the observers who might yeah. go either way. And, and they're, they're, the ones, they're, they're the most important audience. They're the ones you care yeah. about. Well, we, we, we deeply care here on Fuzzy Logic. I think we might break to a music track. And today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking climate change, how we deal with the psychology of climate change with our guests, uh, Jackie Hopner and Inez Harkashuk. <laughs> And I'm getting good at pronouncing the names now. Jackie, you chose a track. Remind me which one from the David Bowie CD you chose. Which track was it? Uh, track 9 Heroes, please. Track 9 Heroes. Well, we do have some heroes here in the studio on Fuzzy Logic. There you go. We're also on Twitter and we do Facebook stuff as well. Now, we were talking before the song about climate change, global warming. By the way, do you have a, a preference? Does it bother you which term is used? Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, global warming is just re referring to a warming phase yep. in the climate um, change phenomena. And climate change, when, especially during a transition phase as it's going through, will not necessarily have warming. So global warming is a bit of a misnomer. It's a sim I think it's a simplification. We know about climate extremes and all of these other you know, heat, heat waves, sure, um, and, and rising temperatures overall. Climate but, change but there's, is there's a much, so much more, more subtle thing. You can have and cooling in, during climate change as you, know, you have um, the, the winds that kind of circumnavigate the poles start to shift and waver. Yes, yeah, so some parts actually the ice is growing and so right, yeah. yeah. Now, the irony, of course, of that is that it was a bit of language manipulation in the United States that uh, the report was being put out, I forget by who, and they said, oh, global warming is a bit scary, so we'll make it a slightly softer, fluffier example wording, and that's how the, the climate change label came up. And now a lot of uh, Australian federal government departments can't even use climate change, so they, they have to talk about you know, climate extremes and ex extreme weather events and things like this that, that aren't, aren't accurate either. It, it's worrying when we manipulate the language and, and it's sort of a, a political correctness, isn't it? Or it's a fear. It's a fear of saying something controversial. It's politics informing science and not science, as we're required to do, informing politics for the good of the general public. Now, we, we're talking about uh, global warming, uh, climate change, and how it's a complicated thing. Now, you've written a column for our Ask Fuzzy, which will run next Sunday, and on the question of feedback. So what is a feedback? How does it affect climate? Do you want to pick up on that? Sure. So a feedback um, 
is um, anything that can be put into a system that will then change the outcome of the system. And it can have two different outcomes. So there's a positive feedback system and there's a negative feedback system. And a negative feedback system will be an input that goes into a system that will actually regulate the system. So, um, it, you know, people will think that this, you know, is something that's kind of a neutral feedback, but it isn't. So, for example, an example of a negative feedback would be sweating. So um, you sweat, your body cools down, um, and you maintain your body temperature. So it's a, kind of dampens or subdues an effect. Whereas a positive feedback system is something that reinforces and amplifies a change. So it, um, it, more or less it's called the devil cycle. So, um, for example, a really good example of this is when you have some cows in a field, one of the cows gets spooked, and then it causes a stampede. So, you know, suddenly they're all gone mad and they're running through the, you know, through the barn, and that would be because you've had this one cow that's kind of infected all the others with this mad panic. Ah, well, let me try a little on-air experiment. I'm going to see if this works. I've got my hearing aid here. There you go. Yep. Can you hear that? Yep. It's, uh, it's squeaking, it's squeaking, so I've got a microphone that's right next to a, a little speaker and the, the system's going around and round and round and it just amplifies itself. Now the electronics in this have a negative feedback as well because what it does, there's a little digital signal processor in there and it's detecting the feedback mechanism and it dampens it. That's a great example because what you've done there is you've actually seen a, a system like a climate system which has both negative and positive feedbacks in, in, in that system. And what's, what's an example in the climate system of a positive feedback? A positive feedback system would be, for example, I think it's the one that motivates all scientists once they understand it, is the positive feedback system of the water cycle, evaporation and warming. So water, it's very important to understand this, um, that water is a greenhouse gas but only when it's a gas, obviously. Mm -hmm. So um, you'll have a little bit of warming that's, you know, we've increased the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, even by a very small amount. Um, that will cause then more water to evaporate. Is that just water humidity, atmospheric humidity, or are you talking about I'm cloud? Talking about, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about liquid water. So liquid water at the Earth's surface mm -hmm. is 71% of Earth's surface. So if you have a little bit of warming in our, in, in our atmosphere, so inside the troposphere, which is the lowest layer of our atmosphere, if we have a little bit of warming, that's going to cause more evaporation and more water turning into a greenhouse gas, which will then mean more warming, more evaporation, more greenhouse gases, more warming, more evaporation, and, and so, so, so round and round it goes. And it gets worse. But uh, does it matter whether the water is in a cloud? Oh yes, and then we then we have of course a cloud. So a cloud could, is a great example of a negative feedback system. So a negative feedback system is when, as I mentioned, it subdues or dampens the effect of um, of the input. So of course, if you have more evaporation, you're going to have more cloud formation. Um, one of the very important things to understand about climate science as a mechanism is that um, incoming solar radiation, sunlight, bounces off dark areas of Earth's surface, changes its frequency and becomes infrared radiation. That's one of the effects it has when it bounces off the mm -hmm. surface. And it's only this frequency that greenhouse gases can respond to. So if we have more clouds, though, they actually bounce off the white surface. And that reflects back reflects up. Reflects back to space, mm. you know, a lot of it. Not and what about ice? Ice is probably the most essential ingredient inside the climate system because um, it, it has a function called albedo. Um, and albedo is um, basically, it's from zero to one, is basically a scale of how dark or light a surface is and how likely it is for incoming solar radiation to bounce off that surface and um, 
interact with um, greenhouse and there's there's a whole bunch of these feedbacks in the climate system we're not even sure we we know them all i think is would be fair to say i think we know them all i think we really do we're really well um down pat on on the feedbacks now we don't know how they necessarily interact with each other um although of course we now definitely have the signals the major signals are we do have a warming planet we are increasing carbon um you know carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases so those signals we see but the very um complex um sometimes small scale um interactions are not well understood cloud formation how much cloud is being generated in our in our in our system over time you know and how much methane is being released from the tundra and on the ocean floor yeah. we've got the methyl cathrates cathrates lates right they're lovely they're i mean they're a fascinating aspect of climate science i think yeah uh, uh vegetation cover yeah now, an ask fuzzy we did not long ago was about the carbon take up of plants, and I had a professor from uh, University of Sydney, I think he is, and he's calculated that uh, the rate of plant growth increases with more carbon dioxide, and it's actually been a negative feedback. It's actually moderated to some extent the uh, the impact of uh, carbon dioxide emissions it does but then when there's an abundant amount tre- trees are lazy things just, <laughs> just like humans so when there's abundance of carbon dioxide and that's one of the things we study in Copenhagen so I also um, work at University of Copenhagen so um, one of the things we see is that when you have an abundance of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere um, the, the leaves don't create more stomata the stomata are the small little lips on the surface of the leaf which um, take up the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and so if they don't have to create more of those on the surface of their leaf at a certain amount of carbon dioxide saturation um, they just don't bother because they don't need to why put out all the effort when they can only put out let's say half and get the same growth uh, it's a it's a deeply deeply worrying thing now Jackie you've done research your PhD was on types of research that can happen and, and should happen but doesn't happen for perhaps the wrong reasons. You, do you want to explain that, what that means? Yeah, so my research was uh, looking at uh, attacks on academics. Now I should clarify I'm not talking about a taxation system. I didn't realise that this was a common uh, misconception when I explain this to people. People always think I'm saying that academics should be taxed. That's not what I mean. Um, no, academics who are attacked and uh, when they think that they are following kind of the structures of science so they you know they put in ethics protocols they submit journals to um, uh, submit papers to journals and go through the peer review system and this I'm looking at attacks that go beyond this peer review so this isn't about um, critique or you know I want to know what your methodology was I want to know how you arrived at, at that conclusion this isn't substantive criticism this is personal attacks this is, is personal uh, ad hominem attacks that that the the response is really I don't like what you're saying and you need to shut up um, and so I spoke to uh, 18 academics whose work had been uh, silenced or attacked or constrained in some way and what that reveals about the kinds of questions we can ask. Did you have to do that uh, anonymously? Uh, no, they were all uh, on the record. That was part of my ethics protocol. So some of the people I interviewed had very high-profile cases and any attempt to kind of anonymise them and, and make it impossible to identify them um, from a f- third party would have... Been too, too difficult. Too difficult and it would have negated... Well, you know, the purpose of, of the study, I think. Give me an example of where this has happened. 
Uh, so a lot of the cases I looked at were from um, academics whose work disrupted a particular public health um, status quo. Uh, so that might be, um, I'm not going to name, name names because there are some people who are still very angry about it, uh, but there were um, you know, studies about the link between sugar and obesity and, and, and maybe that's not as clear-cut as we think. There were studies about um, mammography and whether the, the benefits of, of kind of wide-scale screening for breast cancer um, actually has more benefits than risks and, and you know this research found that so for some reason these views or not views is not the right word but these areas are unpalatable to other people did you talk to people who were on the other side people who were the anti and, and why they reacted the way they did uh, so one of my participants um, is an interesting character he I would say embodies both um, victim and perpetrator so uh, he was he was a, f a fascinating person, um, and he he's a, so he's an academic himself, um, very very prominent, very successful, uh, and he has received all kinds of of horrible threats and you know death threats and um, you know he said he has a filing cabinet full of attacks on on him, um, but he's also someone who has been prone to to, to doing something to, similar. Is, is there is a parallel with bullying here? I. I think so, but I don't know whether it's conscious. And so something I really wanted to, to kind of draw out in my, in my research was I think we all have this very visceral response, and I spoke about this before, that when we are confronted with an, with an idea that conflicts with our, our worldview, as, as Inez has talked about, we have to make a decision. Do we, do we go through this uncomfortable, painful process of saying, okay, maybe I've been wrong, or do we... Right, double so down that, and, 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 and say, you know, you have to shut up so and that you need to go away. So that taps into what we were discussing earlier today about how we get attached to a view and it becomes, and I think you said, Inez, it's uh, our world, our sense of ourself is attached like, you know, I'm right, I'm a fuzzy logic science producer, you know, da-da-da. But if something threatens that, then I might respond in a very negative way and I might be, I might attack somebody else who was... I thought the, the threat. Yes, and I think so. There's a couple of different drivers. So there are um, the so the weirdest kind of most unusual finding was that most of the people who attack academics are other academics. This isn't uh, what we would commonly think when we think about attacks on scientists. We usually think about you know the death threats that climate scientists receive and mm. and these kinds of um, you know an interest group or a, or a particularly angry member of the public you know fixating you, on something do you have a sense of what to do about this is there a way to improve the situation i mean for me something again that i was really trying to draw out is this uh reflexivity i think it, it's it's a term from from anthropology and i think it it really needs to become a central part of the scientific method um i think a lot of people think that science is about removing bias or or moderating bias um, I actually think we need to be much more intellectually honest with ourselves about who we are, what our perspective is, why we feel so strongly about a, you know a particular view, and and really actively question ourselves. But, but it's a it's a cultural thing. It's also emotional intelligence, isn't it? Yes, I think it, it's emotional intelligence. But I think, and I was saying this to you um, before that I think science 
is, you know, it's really, um, it sees itself as, I think scientists see themselves as, as objective and, and rational Dispa actors. And dispassionate. Dis dispassionate. And I actually think that's, I actually think that's unfair to scientists because we're human beings and we are passionate about what we do. Um, every, every scientist is in their field because, you know, they, they loved collecting bugs as a kid or, you know, growing their own plants or, you know, th th there's, there was a very personal um, driver for them. And so I think saying to them, no, your research now needs to be completely unbiased, uh, unbiased and objective. Well, I guess it's understandable, isn't it, because the scientific method is about moderating the emotional attachment to something. It's trying to get at the truth, and I'm doing the finger-waving mm -hmm. rabbit ear thing. I don't thing. like the word truth. Me neither. Be honest, Me neither. If we well, could remove that word, because I think also if you look throughout philosophy, um, that's part of my PhD, to look at some of those things about how we... Um, I think we have to look at facts, and facts are the things that we, we have a wall, we have, we have a, something that we have to solve, and we start putting little bricks of facts into that wall, and that's how we come up with very solid theories in order to address those problems, whether they're climate change, whether they're, um, you know, other problems in the past that we've solved, um, the ozone um, hold problem, which was a different thing because it could be dealt with at the industry level and not at the public level. Um, so once we build facts, um, and we challenge our facts and we hold our facts up to critique and that we're willing to replace those facts with other fact bricks. I know it sounds very childish, but it's, it's something I have to do. It's something that I came into this with very, very naive, I think I mentioned it earlier, some very naive ideas about how I should promote climate science awareness. And a lot of the appeals I used in the beginning were actually not very constructive at all. And I've now changed that. And I've also worked out that you know, you asked earlier, what can we do about worldview? Well, I have to be honest here, very, very little. Once you have a constructed worldview, regardless of what it is, about men, gender issues, um, climate change, it is almost impossible as an adult for you to remyelinate your brain and stop thinking like that. It's all very challenging stuff. And uh, we could get into a postmodernist discussion about <laughs> whether there is such a thing as truth, but there is definitely such a thing as uh, my guest today here on Fuzzy Logic, uh, Inez Hopner. And sorry, I've got that confused. I've just swapped you around, haven't I? I think uh, oh, let's go with that, Inez Hopner and uh, Jackie Harker. <laughs> Uh, some of the preceding may not be true, but it will challenge my worldview. Let's have a bit of music. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, oh, a computer game. How we understand what's happening to the planet and how we, I don't know if educate is the right word, but how we communicate what science means, what science is telling us about these things. Now, you've come up with a really interesting way to do this and it involves a Kickstarter campaign. Give it a plug. All right. Um, well, we've basically developed a game. It's been two or three years actually in the development, in the making, but more than 10 years in the development. Um, and it basically is using digital tools, so video games, visualizations, 3D interactive worlds to teach climate science. And um, it's really um, new. It's never been done before because even though we do have climate change games, 
they actually teach from a governance point of view. So you might be the mayor of a city and you're supposed to swap, you know, manage the city as well as stop sea level rise and all those kinds of things. Whereas our game is just about the science. It's just about the mechanics of uh, climate change. The phenomenally beautiful mechanics of climate science. Yeah. And yeah, because climate change, as people often remind me, they don't need to, is a natural phenomena. It is. We've had lots of climate change and all the mechanisms behind the natural phenomena we, we understand very well. Um, but then we have, of course, anthropogenic climate change, so human-induced climate change. Mm-hmm. And that involves having you know, changes to our climate which are caused by increased greenhouse gases and things like this. And so trying to give people a really good understanding of how all those mechanisms play and interact from a photon that shoots out of our sun into, the Earth, into, the, into space and sees this beautiful iridescent blue planet shining, you know, the only one of its kind that we know of, and wants to find out why there is water on the surface of that planet. Oh, it, it is a wondrous thing, isn't it? There's the, the beauty of nature, I think, as you're saying. Right, just give me a sense of what it's like to play this game. So I sit down at my console or whatever it is, and what happens? Well, basically, you shoot out of the sun, you're a little photon, you go on this journey, you meet lots of different space probes, all the ones that we find in space. Well, where, where do you start in the game? In the sun. In the sun. Which is where climate change basically starts from. Yeah. And it involves all our different planets because all, of our, all the planets in our solar system have different um, atmospheres. Some have no atmosphere. We can actually use those different planets to, to actually better work out why Earth is the way that it is. So you journey with a photon across space? Across space. You meet the different planets. You meet the orbs in the space um, craft that um, investigate them. You have to take on all these different missions. Some of the spacecraft have secrets that you have to, um, you, have to uh, you know... Well, so there's a sense of discovery? Oh, it's definitely. It's all about discovery. Yeah. So w- what are you doing interactively? What's the, what's the game player doing? Well, you're basically on a mission to find out why we have a liquid water Earth surface, but, and you're also collecting all this different data for the space probe. So it's kind of an exchange business. In everything in life, you have an exchange, an energy exchange. But what so decisions are you making? What, what, how do you interact with the game? Well, you will talk to, you're the photon. Yep. You talk to the dis- different spacecraft that are circling the sun, are circling the different planets. They give you um, tasks and missions to complete. Sometimes it's a calculation. Sometimes you have to take an Earth, a, 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 um, a sample of the atmosphere sometimes you um, yeah there's lots of different ways of doing is it, that is it technical is it is it conceptually challenging or difficult hopefully um, the more into the game that they get um, it gets a little bit more difficult but nothing should be too difficult that can't be managed on the other hand it shouldn't be boring so we are pushing them to kind of push their limits which we also find from a very good researcher who wrote a book called the optimistic child that if you set people um, kind of goals that they can achieve and they achieve them, this boosts their self-esteem and also their sense of mastery. And mastery for any learning activity is essential. So any student who's successful inside a class gets a sense of mastery. So as a player, then, you you make a, a decision, you control something... You are the photon. You are basically, um, you find out how Earth is like this. But can, can you steer the photon? Yeah, or? totally 3D, inter- 3D interactive game. So it's all 3D works. It's our solar system to scale. Yeah. Um, and you can jump between all the different spacecraft once you, um, you get there. You have bonus levels and you have a brain. And inside your brain that's inside the game, you collect really important information which you use to exchange for other information in the same way that we do really. Well, give me an, an example of a mission. 
Okay, so the first mission you have is when you reach um, when you reach Mercury and you find Messenger, who is one of the first probes, space probes we sent out there, the, and it's actually retired now. But you meet Messenger, and Messenger says, "Look," um, and, he, and the phone asks, "You know, what is that blue spot in space?" And the Messenger says, "Well, I will tell you, but only after you've helped me complete my mission, which is to discover." Um, Mercury. So he then goes to discover Mercury, he, and it's also what we call onboarding. So when you are learning how to play any kind of game that's digital, you have to have, give your, your your player, your user, um, a kind of um, a coaching a coaching session. Yeah? yeah. So that is the first part of the game is to onboard them, so they get used to all the different plays of that game before they go on there to discover. Oh, if, the if I can uh, inter interject with a an analogy from the movie and uh, book writing, no, fiction, there's a thing they call expository dialogue and where one character says, so you're the estranged daughter of a <laughs> person and uh, your mission is to blah, 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 and after a while the listener reader goes, <laughs> but a better way, they, or they call it show, don't tell. Yeah, show, don't tell. So that's what you're doing. You're, yeah. you're, you're teaching. He gets some, the player or she. Um, she, yep. She gets some point, bonus points for doing the tasks. Um, she might even have options to do more bonus points. And there's some other little bonus games. Every learning experience should be fun. It should, you know, involve curiosity. So as well as learning stuff from us. If you're willing to get onto um, in, into that world, then as a teacher, let's say, we want to give you a, a thank you for getting into that world. So we'll have a bonus game of like having to steer through space debris just for fun, you know. So learning is about yeah, um, computer joy. computer games uh, like there's the challenge, how do I solve this problem? But there's also the exploration, isn't it? So oh, yeah. you love reading. Oh, the movie Avatar. And, and one of the joys of the Avatar movie is you get to see this new world, the fantastic plants and the people who inhabit it and, and so on. So you're, you're tapping into yeah. both of those things. Yeah. But, but also because I think one of the things we always forget is that that's what science is. Science, I mean, I know that my, my supervisor will probably shoot me as I say this, but here we go, Sue. Um, I, I think... There, there is magic in science. There is, there, we have potions. We've, we've loved potions. We have, you know, Viagra. We have MDMA. We have all these terrible, you know, these fantastically terrible, fantastic things that we use in science, which is a form of trickery and magic, which is marvelous. And when, and often we have all these fantasy worlds that we want to go to. When actually, if we just bother to kind of explore the one we live in mm -hmm. in a really earnest and joyful way, you know, then I think that a lot of the things that we are fighting against. Depression, loneliness would all evaporate because it's connecting to something that is really meaningful. Do you, do you think, Jackie, we should call this program the the, the joy of climate? <laughs> uh, oh, may, maybe, but I, I think that's actually a really interesting point. I uh, contributed to a book a couple of years ago, um, Visions 2100 by John O'Brien, and it was stories from our climate future. And he, at the launch in Sydney, he said, we really have to stop with these these fear appeals because they're paralyzing people and and if we can reframe it and actually empower people to you know to feel like they are um, contributing in some way and I really think that that's what Inez's game does as I said before I am I'm relying entirely on you know authority so I am really excited to play this game because it means that I will have those all right, we, we, uh, I hate to, to slow you down there, but we're running out of time now, and you have a Kickstarter campaign associated with this, and so if people go online, we'll, we'll put links up on our Twitter, and with the podcast of this show, what, uh, what happens? Tell us quickly in 30 seconds. 
the Kickstarter campaign to fund this project? Well, if you look on Kickstarter, you can find it under CO2 Operation, so it's just the double O, Cooperation, um, and it's basically a digital game. Once we fund this game, we will be taking the game to um, as many schools as we possibly can all over the world. We have, we'll have the first two languages will be in English and in German. Um, and yeah, and there are some amazing rewards that you can get with our. And with if you sign up, if you join the Kickstarter campaign, then you get a, a, a beta release of the game. Do you, you get the alpha release? We've already done the beta. Alpha. We're way ahead of you. <laughs> well, well, I actually have an IT background, so maybe I can give you a hand with that, and uh, that'd be lots of fun. Look, we we've just nearly run out of time, but uh, I just wanted to mention the column we have in today's Canberra Times in the Ask Fuzzy and it goes online in Fairfax is about randomness, which kind of fits in our conversation today. And next week we have your column on feedback, and the one after that I'm thinking I'm going to write one on chaos. How do you get order out of chaos? You get this fantastic, beautiful, swirling patterns, the Mandelbro set and things like that. And uh, a curious thing where Richard Feynman, who was a physicist on the Manhattan Project, they sent him into the plant where they were refining the uh, nuclear fuels and they wanted him to check whether the, uh, the plumbing, all this stuff gurgling around the pipes might... Uh, result in a concentration of a fissible quantity of fuel and which I find is curious because there's a, a mixing process going on and yet you might actually have a concentration occurring. Now that itself is a complicated, oh I'm getting some quizzical looks from across the desk here. Uh, yeah, chip in. Did you have? A, did you want to comment on that? No, I don't think I'm brave enough. <laughs> well, take another example, right? The, the, the surface of the Earth is constantly churning. The heat from the uh, radioactive uh, core of the, of the planet and the stuff has been gurgling around and around and around, and yet we get ore bodies. In spite of all that mixing, in a mixing of people, we have uh, racial divides, we have cultural divides, we have the Kurds cropping up in the middle of uh, uh, the Middle East, uh, yeah, people have been wandering around and mixing with each other for s thousands of years. Isn't, isn't that marvellous? I mean, I have to really be honest here. Um, we talk about all these things as if there's some kind of a, a polarisation or dichotomy, but actually, without that denialism, without those curves, without those things challenging our perceptions and our, our progress, we cannot go forward. So they are as essential to this mix as the most forward-thinking uh, What a What a beautiful and interesting thing. Well, it's a great pleasure uh, to have you on Fuzzy Logic uh, Inez and Jackie and uh, maybe we'll get you back on Fuzzy Logic in a future show. Love to hear how the game goes. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Catch you later.